You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. There's people who you know well. They tend to travel in the same circles and they know a lot of the same things that you do. And so they give you redundant information. Whereas your weak ties are much more likely to meet different people, to know different things, and they give you more efficient access to novel information, which is one of the reasons why you're more likely to get a new job through a weak tie than a strong tie. And welcome to U-Turns Because Shift Happens. I'm Lisa Oz. And I'm Jill Herzig. And we are here talking about change. Um, Because all of us, because heck, it shift happens. All of us go through periods in our lives when the trajectory we were on suddenly changes and we find ourselves in an entirely new situation. Um, Sometimes we choose to make those changes. Sometimes it is precipitated by fate. Um, Forces outside our control. Exactly. (laughs) Sometimes those changes are great and wonderful, like a new job or graduation or new romance. Sometimes those changes are traumatic and devastating. And our guest today is an expert in both of those types of changes. Yes, we are here with Adam Grant. So, Adam, you are an organizational psychologist, and I love how you explain this. I think you say it, that you work to help people learn how to make work work not suck. (laughs) Um, But I also feel like you're an expert in making life not suck. Um, You are the host of Work Life with Adam Grant. Which you do with TED is one of their TED podcasts. Um, you've done two TED Talks that I know about anyway, and together they have more than 12 million views. So that's pretty incredible. And that's not even to mention the three best-selling books that you've written, um, Originals, Give and Take, and Option B, which you wrote with Sheryl Sandberg after the death of her husband, Dave, when she was looking for recovery and direction. Um, And I found all of these books incredibly helpful and fascinating in very different ways. Wow. Thank you. (laughs) 
So, Adam, can you talk a little bit about a U-turn or several U-turns in your own life? Was there a time where you started out going one way and then found yourself in the, going the opposite direction? Yeah, there have been a lot of them. <laughs> where do you want to start? <laughs> your favorite one. Oh, wait, are we, are we supposed to like U-turns? <laughs> Some of them, right? I think we're supposed to be honest about them. The fact that we might really not like them while we're going through them, but hopefully they lead somewhere oh, good. The one that you learned the most from. Yeah. yeah. Well, all right. Let me, let me give you a few and you can choose. Sounds so good. So there was the one in high school. Actually, it goes back to middle school. where I was, <laughs> I was cut from the middle school basketball team all three years of trying out. And then I decided to focus completely on soccer. And then I didn't make my high school soccer team. And I turned to diving and became completely obsessed with it and fell in love with it, and it, it changed my life for the better. That was one. Okay. A, a slow, gradual, painful, but ultimately triumphant U-turn. <laughs> I love <laughs> Tri- it. Triumphant because diving is a nerd sport, and the people I competed against were way less talented than in basketball and soccer. But sure. I don't know. When I look at divers, they look pretty talented to me. But go ahead. Give us a, give us another U-turn. You learned something. Uh, then when, let's see, when I was in college, I ran for the presidency of this, uh, this organization. It was actually a student company, and I lost. And I decided that I wanted to be an academic instead and study all the things that I'd been doing as a manager. Uh, and then, I guess in, in 2011, I got tenure, and I had to figure out whether I was going to continue justifying writing articles that very few people ever read, or whether I was going <laughs> to share my work more broadly, and I decided to write a book, and I thought I was just going to write give and take and then go back to research and teaching as usual, and it's completely shifted the way that I spend my time. And it seemed, you know, I read about you that you used to be terrified of public speaking. And obviously, you know, in order to share your work more broadly, you had to get over that. Um, and that's, that's how 12 million views happened. So can you tell us how you, how, how did you do that? I mean, that, that was, that could have prevented a U-turn if you hadn't been able to do that. Yeah, I forgot that one, but that happened too. <laughs> <laughs> well, I remember, I remember in college being in classes where I was just riveted by the material and spending the whole lecture trying to work up the courage to raise my hand. And then in small seminars, I decided I was going to go to get over it, and I would, I would literally physically shake as I thought about the prospect of, of speaking up. Mm. And... When I got to when I got to grad school, I knew that I had to learn how to teach, and you know, a big part of why I went was I, I wanted to teach. I was passionate about sharing ideas, and what I did was I volunteered to give guest lectures in other people's classes. You know, I figured it was better to ruin theirs than, than mine. <laughs> no, no, I just it, it wasn't time for me to teach my own classes yet, and so I said I'm going to get over this by putting myself in a harder situation where I don't get to spend a whole semester building relationships with students and finding out what they're interested in. I'm just going to stand up and give lectures for this crowd of strangers. And so I, I, I gave a couple of these, and every time I gave out feedback forms and asked for all the things that I should do differently. And some of the comments were brutal. I remember one student rem- writing that I reminded them of a Muppet. Uh, <laughs> Muppet. They never told me which one, <laughs> but, you know, jury's still out. And another wrote that I was so nervous that I was causing them to physically shake in their seats. Okay. Wow. So how do you deal with that kind of feedback? What, what gets you to get 
back up on the stage after because I would just crumple up in a ball at that. Yeah, and decide maybe maybe I, I'm headed in the wrong direction. Maybe that maybe this is completely yeah. wrong for me. Yeah, I would be ruminating over what kind of muppet I was. I'm before <laughs> anyway. <laughs> How did you get back up there? I was going for Kermit the Frog, but... (laughs) (laughs) I would definitely say you've got a Kermit vibe Well, thank you. I'll take that as a compliment. There are worse (laughs) options on the table for sure, but... He's the best. Yeah, you know, I I think three things happened. The first one was there were some compliments about the material, and so it was clear that even though my delivery was terrible, that people were interested in what I had to say. Hmm. And so I felt like I had to find a better way to communicate it and get more comfortable putting it out there. The second was that I I knew I wanted to be a professor because professors changed my life. And I wanted to try to pay that forward, and I couldn't do it without getting better at public speaking. And then I think the third thing that happened was I realized that I'd I'd sort of climbed a version of that mountain before, which is uh, starting in middle school, I I began performing magic. And by high school and, and college, I was doing magic shows. And that was a, a performance where I did public speaking in front of audiences. Mm. But it didn't feel the same because I had a script and I'd rehearsed the tricks over and over again. And so I thought, okay, I need to retrace those steps that I took as a magician, now as a professor. So does that mean that you are an uber preparer for your lectures? I mean, do you, do you try and iron out every wrinkle before you stand up there? Oh, not anymore, but I used to. Okay. Yeah, he confessed in one of the TED videos that he you called it a procrastinator. <laughs> and yeah. I think, Jill, you're like that too, where yeah. you said four months before it was due, you started panicking. Oh, at least. <laughs> right. I, yeah, I mean, as a procrastinator, I feel the urgency to get something done now that might be due years down the road. Mm. But I'm also this weird mix of optimist and defensive pessimist where... You know, the optimistic part of me says, I can figure this out, right? I'm, I'm a good learner. Uh, I like rising to challenges. There's, there's nothing that I can't figure out. The defensive pessimist in me then starts to think about the specific performance coming up <laughs> and imagine, you know, I, I remember in school thinking, all right, I'm, I'm not just going to bomb this test. I'm going to do so badly that my teacher is going to take away points on my previous exam because there's no <laughs> way I could earn them. Has that ever happened? <laughs> Did you imagine something that's never happened? I was afraid that it might. <laughs> you never know. Teachers can be creative. So, yeah. you know, but I would, I would start to just picture worst case scenarios. And then that would, that would just make me feel really anxious. And then that anxiety would propel me into preparation. And then by the time the performance came around, I was mostly ready. Okay, so there's a moment for that kind of pessimism when you're trying to motivate yourself to do something, but there's also a moment f- for optimism. How do you how do you know? How do you make that transition? Because, I mean, I got to tell you, I have such a mean voice inside my head sometimes, and that voice, oh my God, what a biatch. And, and she's also a bit of a slave <laughs> driver, as Lisa knows. I mean, that's what she's, <laughs> that's what she's referencing here. Um, and I'll just kind of invent flaming hoops that I have to leap through in order to feel prepared for something. But I'll also kind of invent obstacles in my mind and imagine I'm going to get through them. So how do I know when that's self-defeating and when that's motivating? How does somebody like me or like us make that switch? I don't know, Jill. I'm not that kind of psychologist. <laughs> you just make work, not suck. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My, my job is to fix other people's jobs, not give them therapy. Okay. So, you know, I, w- I wish you luck with that. All right. But, <laughs> Thank you. No, I don't, I, I don't actually know that you can know going in. I think that 
the way the way I've I've come to look at this is I think it's great to be an optimist when you're making the decision about whether to start a project or not. Uh, because you know you ought to be excited about the idea and see potential in it, and that gives you some momentum and sort of kickstarts your motivation. And then once you've committed, I think you want to shift over into defensive pessimism and okay. start imagining all the ways that you know that you might flop to make sure that you're you're not complacent. And then I think you know as you get closer to you know the completion or the delivery or the performance. I think that's when you want to get back into optimistic mode again so that you bring you know, the most energy and enthusiasm to the table. Yeah. Uh, but I don't, I don't know how to know exactly when each is appropriate or how to get yourself in each of those modes. So I, uh, I think your guess is as good as mine. All right. Well, thank you for the guidance. Um, after the break, we're going to come back and uh, you're going to explain a term that I found in one of your books, vuja day. Ooh. <laughs> we'll get into it. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant. Just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. At JCPenney, fashion counts for everybody and everybody. It's spring and with the weather changing and so many great things coming up like Mother's Day and the wind down tour, I definitely need a fresh spring wardrobe for every occasion. This spring, I'm looking for that perfect flowy spring dress for Mother's Day as well as replacing my everyday basics. That's what I love about JCPenney. They have so many stylish and comfortable options that I always find just what I'm looking for there. Spring is a feel good season and comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. The fashion at JCPenney is the same way. Refresh your wardrobe this spring with styles that gets you something to wear that fits your favorite moments of the season at prices that feel just as good. Discover brands that get you and put style and comfort first, like Worthington and Liz Claiborne for her, each in women's petite and plus sizes, and Stafford and Mutual Weave for him, style and comfort for all, even big and tall, plus even more for the whole family like Levi's and Exertion. Here, spring comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. JCPenney, make everybody count. Snag a job is where America goes to hire, with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On-demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Before the break, we talked about how procrastinators like Jill and Adam 
deal with upcoming tasks. But in your book, Originals, Adam, you basically explored a different tact, someone more like me. Um, it's sort of, I'm the the anti-procrastinator. Um, <laughs> uh, I am the quintessential procrastinator since I read your book last night. Um, <laughs> Jules, no, Jules, a real, wait a minute. A real procrastinator would be partway through it right now. Well... <laughs> I didn't read the other two. I only read originals because I'm a narcissist as well as a <laughs> Just kidding. Anyway, one of the things that you talk about in originals is this concept that Jill mentioned, vuja day, um, I mean, the opposite of deja vu. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I, I love this term. I got it from from Carl Weick, uh, who's a, a fellow organizational psychologist, and Carl said that, you know, we we love having these moments of vujade, which is, you know, in, in his words, you know, I've if if deja vu is, you know, I'm I'm in this new situation and it it feels sort of familiar. Vujade is the opposite. You're in a familiar situation, but you're like, I have no idea how I got here and where I'm going. I'm totally lost. <laughs> but there's he said there's a positive version of that which which can really unleash creativity which is, you know, when, when you experience Vujade, you're looking at something you've seen hundreds or thousands of times before, but you're seeing it with fresh eyes as if it's brand new again. Mm. And that allows you to, you know, to, to take an innovative vantage point on what might be an old problem. And, and that can sometimes lead to interesting ideas. Well, that's, that is kind of fascinating thought because we're sort of dealing with the idea of feeling stuck in different phases of your life. And it's really, a lot of it's about seeing your life differently, isn't it? And are these moments, can they just be things that strike you out of the blue? Like you wake up one morning and you think, you know, hey, I should be doing this, not that. Yeah, absolutely. I think it does for all of us. But I think that sometimes we don't notice it because we're too focused on our goals. Right, and you know we we haven't opened up our peripheral vision to even you know, sort of catch those those perspectives as they sneak their way in. Yeah, well, that's where the procrastination comes in handy, right? It allow, it gives you the time to reflect on, I guess, on what you're doing. You had some stories about procrastinators in originals that showed that they there was actually some advantage to not doing everything way ahead of time. There can be, yeah. So Jihei Shin and I studied this in some companies, and we also designed some experiments, and we found that people who are moderate procrastinators tend to be more creative than procrastinators or extreme procrastinators. And at first, it was it was hard to get data on the procrastinators because they never showed up for our studies. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, eventually, eventually, we figured it out. And what what seems to be the case is that if you're a procrastinator like me, you make the mistake of rushing forward with your first idea, which is rarely your best idea. Right? It's it's the one that came to mind first. It was the most obvious. And if you're an extreme procrastinator and you wait till the very last minute. You have to rush forward with your easiest idea because you don't have time to work through the, you know, the more creative or more complex. Mm. And so there's this sweet spot, you know, that that Leonardo da Vinci seemed to live in, Steve Jobs, Martin Luther King Jr., Abraham Lincoln. Uh, all of them were quick to start but often slow to finish. You know, they would they would dive into a problem or a question early, and then say, "All right, wait a minute, but I don't want to I don't want to finish it now just because I want to have a sense of closure and completion." I want to keep my mind open to incubating. Right. And I think for a lot of us, we feel like if we're taking our time, we won't be first out of the gate and then we can't win. And you say that's not the case necessarily either. 
Well, the first mover advantage turns out mostly to be a myth in in the world of of companies and businesses. So, I think you know there are there are times when you want to move first. So, if you're dealing with patented technology or if there are big network effects, you know, like in social media, where the more people join, the more valuable your you know your your network is. Uh, it it can be useful to be first, but in most other cases, there's actually a first mover disadvantage. Because the people who move first have to put all their energy into creating the market. And then someone else can just swoop in and make it better. It's much easier to improve on someone else's idea than, you know, than to create yours from scratch. Mm. Which is why I think that you know, very frequently, it's not the, the pioneers, it's more of the settlers who are able to come in. You know, I think of uh, like a Magnavox who you know, kind of helped invent video games. And then Nintendo licensed their technology and then came up with a much better version of it and you know, was able to piggyback on all the, the work they had done uh, to open up that, that domain. And you see this happen over and over again, right? It's, it's part of the reason that, that Google came in way after a whole generation of search engines. And you know, I think there's, there's more to that than people often realize. So you can be an original, but you don't necessarily have to be the original original. (laughs) (laughs) No, you don't have to be first. You just have to be different and better. Okay. And sometimes hanging back a little bit lets you know how you're going to be different and better. That's interesting. Yeah, I think we we always talk about how the the early bird gets the worm, but no one ever mentions that the early worm gets caught. (laughs) (laughs) Don't be the worm. Um, I'm going to sling something out at you because it really surprised me. Um, it seems like you are down on gratitude, like you, you, the whole gratitude list thing, which I feel Ooh. like everyone and their brother tells you to turn to and, for heaven's sakes, you know, start and finish your day with that moment of gratitude. Not your thing? Well, it depends on where you draw the line. So my, I feel like my job as a social scientist is to look at the evidence and figure out what works for most of the people most of the time. And Sonia Lubomirsky has these interesting studies where she shows that it's better to keep a gratitude list once a week than once a day. Hmm. It, it seems like if you do it daily, it starts to get repetitive, and then you also run out of meaningful things, and, and pretty soon you're like, wow, I'm really grateful for you know the, the paint that's on my wall, and it's dry. <laughs> and it, if you do it weekly, it, you know, it stays fresh, and you're able to focus maybe on, on some more meaningful things that, that you truly do appreciate. And then I found in some of my own work that gratitude can be a fleeting emotion. So I did these studies with a colleague, Jane Dutton, where uh, we studied university fundraisers. And we randomly assigned some of them to keep gratitude journals and write about things that they appreciated at work. And there was no effect whatsoever on their effort in the, the next few weeks. They didn't make more calls. They didn't spend more time on the phone. And it seemed to be the case that you know, gratitude sort of put them in a passive position, Right? It's all about what you've received from others. And we thought, how do we get, how do we get these, these people to feel more active? And we said, what if instead they kept a contribution journal? Where you know, rather than reflecting on what they received from others, they were journaling about what they gave to others and how their actions made a difference. And the callers who kept those journals actually spiked in effort by about 50% a week. Uh, so you know, it, when you wrote about what you'd contributed to others, it reinforced, hey, I make a difference. My actions matter. Other people value me. And then it's much more likely that you're going to step up and, and try to help others when you have opportunities in the future. 
And so, you know, I think, I think there's value in counting your blessings, but you should also count your contributions. Hmm. Sounds like good advice. It does, especially since those people were asking other people for money. <laughs> so, Touche. So I, I, but, I, but I get it. I mean, they were also probably saying to themselves, I'm doing something for this cause, and the cause is really important, and it got them going. I just want to push back a little bit on the gratitude thing, just because of something you said. In a talk with that you and Cheryl Sandberg were giving— she said, Are you going to use my own words against yes, me? Yes, I am. That's what I do. Don't do that. That's so cruel. I'm not a hypocrite. <laughs> well, there was just a point where you said, where, when she said, all right, I'm using her words against you, all right? Is that more fair? <laughs> yes, um, totally fair. Um, she said that when she was in her deepest, darkest hole, you said it could be worse. So be appreciative for what, you know, where you are, even though it's a really dreadful place. And she said, what are you talking about? It could be worse. And he said, well, you said that your that her husband could have been driving her kids when he had his arrhythmia. So suddenly she said she was so blessed and appreciative and grateful for the fact that that wasn't the case, that it completely adjusted her outlook. And that was sort of like when she was able to crawl out of that hole and, and start rebuilding and stop feeling as sorry for herself. And she said she was good after that. So taking stock of... Your blessings, I think, can help you with a change, right? <laughs> yeah, of course. I But I wasn't suggesting that she journal about that every day, okay. right? And, you know, constantly count the things that she was grateful for. I, I do think, you know, this might be a little different in the context of, you know, acute stress or tragedy, where, you know, if, if you're ruminating on, you know, on a horrible event, and, you know, you're in, in Cheryl's case, she was just thinking through all the things that she could have done and felt she should have done to save her husband. And, you know, no matter how many times her neurosurgeon brother said to her, even the doctors didn't catch this. There's no way you could have caught this. Right. Uh, she still in some way felt responsible. And so, you know, I think the, one of the lessons there is, you know, if you're, if you're stuck in ruminating about the past— you shouldn't just compare the past to what could have been better. You also should compare it to what could have been worse. You know, it's a little bit like uh, in a much more mundane setting, I often see with my students who, who complain a lot about FOMO, the fear of missing out, uh, which is one of those things that apparently only millennials experience. <laughs> but, you know, when, when you actually sit down and think about that, what, what is FOMO? It's about assuming that you could be doing something else that's better but you also could be doing something else that's worse. And so I love this term that Oliver Berkman coined. He talks about JOMO, which is the joy of missing out. <laughs> and thinking about how glad you are that you're not doing all these boring things that a lot of your friends are stuck doing. And so the point is, if, you know, if you're going to engage in what psychologists call counterfactual thinking, where you, know, you imagine the present or the past being different from what it you know, is or was, uh, you, should, you should make the upward and the downward comparisons, the, the better and the worse. Mm, I love that. Yeah, you, they can always imagine that they're in a Wharton class with a really boring <laughs> professor instead of the, <laughs> the cool one with the TED Talk. <laughs> That's a, I, I don't think anyone has ever called me cool before. Okay, there you go. Hang it on the wall. <laughs> um, I mean, it, it obviously sounds like you were an incredible ally to Cheryl through through this awful period she was going through. Um, you know, how do you find allies? You, talk, you talked about the importance of finding a posse, people who can support you. How, how do you know who to 
how to build that team? Are, is it sometimes not the people that you think you should have on, on that team? Yeah, you know, it's, it's funny because I've always gravitated toward people that in psychology we'd call agreeable. Uh, so agreeableness is one of the major dimensions of personality. And, you know, you think of agreeable people as warm, friendly, polite, welcoming, nice people. And disagreeable people are more critical, skeptical, and challenging. Uh, they're also much more likely than their peers to go to law school. <laughs> That's another conversation. <laughs> and, you know, I think that I've, I've always had this inclination to, to reach out to and lean on agreeable people because I know they'll be cheerleaders. And, you know, they are in those one-on-one conversations. But agreeable people love harmony. And that means they, they tend to leave two big gaps one is that they're, they're not very good at questioning you. So you don't just need a support network. You also need a challenge network, mm. right? Not, not just people who, who kind of affirm everything that you're doing, but, but people who push you because they care about helping you improve. And agreeable people are a little less likely to do that because they don't like conflict. And then the other thing is, if you're, if you're let's say you're making a U-turn in the sense that you know, you've quit your job and you're trying to start a business, agreeable people are not, great advocates for your ideas with others because they don't want to rock the boat and they don't want to pitch an idea that somebody else might not like. It's the disagreeable people who are you know, willing to, to challenge you because they want to help you and who love fighting that uphill battle and will stand up for an idea that's unpopular or unproven. And you know, if you can get them excited about it, they will run through walls for you. And so I think that we should all stop underestimating the value that disagreeable people really bring to our lives. Hmm. It's fascinating because, you know, in these down moments when we're making transitions, you're right, we see comfort. And um, some of those, you know, more abrasive types who, you know, give us the tough love aren't, aren't the ones we rush to. I think we need both. Yeah. I think we need the support and the push forward. Yeah. I mean, you know, in my sort of job searching, um, post being hip-checked out of a, a job in an industry, I've found that sometimes it's the people who are not in my close network, but in my secondary or even tertiary network, who have the most interesting ideas for me. And they don't know me from Adam, really. I mean, they're just kind of you know, I, I get them to meet me for coffee and they talk to me for a little while and they throw things out. And some of, some of what they throw out is very challenging, but it seems like they're not as um, attached to one idea of me or to making me feel better. You know, right. they just, they're just meeting me for coffee. They may never see me again. They'll just tell me, tell me what they think. The, the important thing is the fact I, that they are givers. And Adam, talk about that, right? How do you tell if someone that you're sitting down getting advice from while you're having coffee is a giver or a taker? Well, I was going to say that if your acquaintances are giving you better advice than your friends, you need new friends. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> but, no, I, I think that—actually, I want to talk about why, why that's not true. But, okay. yeah, so first, you know, I, I've spent a lot of my career studying this give-or-taker distinction on the extremes where, you know, givers are the people who are, are constantly trying to figure out what they can do for you, whereas takers are all about what can you do for me. Hmm, that's, that's interesting. We're going to come back to that. After the break, because this give or taker thing is very important. I also want to talk about self compassion. Ooh, we can do that too. Okay, great. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like. <sighs> 
being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant, just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. At JCPenney, fashion counts for everybody and everybody. It's spring and with the weather changing and so many great things coming up like Mother's Day and the wind down tour, I definitely need a fresh spring wardrobe for every occasion. This spring, I'm looking for that perfect flowy spring dress for Mother's Day as well as replacing my everyday basics. That's what I love about JCPenney. They have so many stylish and comfortable options that I always find just what I'm looking for there. Spring is a feel-good season and comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. The fashion at JCPenney is the same way. Refresh your wardrobe this spring with styles that gets you. Something to wear that fits your favorite moments of the season at prices that feel just as good. Discover brands that get you and put style and comfort first, like Worthington and Liz Claiborne for her, each in women's petite and plus sizes, and Stafford and Mutual Weave for him, style and comfort for all, even big and tall, plus even more for the whole family like Levi's and Exertion. Here, spring comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. JCPenney, make everybody count. Snag a job is where America goes to hire, with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On-demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. And we are back speaking with Adam Grant about givers and takers. Givers and, and takers. And, and finding the right balance of those people in your life. Go ahead, Adam, tell us. Well, first, let's, let's just talk about the friend acquaintance thing for a second, because I, I feel like it's, it's an important distinction that often gets overlooked. So, you know, in, in sociology, when you study weak ties and strong ties, you often find that people get better advice from their weak ties than their strong ties. And, you know, there's people who you know well and have built a lot of familiarity and trust with. They tend to travel in the same circles and they know a lot of the same things that you do. Hmm. And so they give you redundant information. Whereas your weak ties are much more likely to meet different people, to know different things, and they give you more efficient access to novel information, which is one of the reasons why you're more likely to get a new job through a weak tie than a strong tie, for example. Um, but I it's hard to reach out to those weak ties. I have to be true. That, that have you? I, I, I wouldn't have known to call them weak ties. They're just, <laughs> you know, awkward people to try and meet for coffee. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, um, but actually, those have turned out to be some of the most interesting meetings. You're absolutely right. And they pop with ideas in a way that, you know, my, my close ties um, don't necessarily always. So there's a way to get that without the awkwardness. Okay. Uh, there's a third kind of tie, which is called a dormant tie. 
And those are the people that you used to know but lost touch with in the last three, five, seven years. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What's great about Dormant Ties is it's way easier to reconnect with someone you used to know than to start a connection from scratch with someone you hardly know. But unlike your strong ties, your dormant ties have been doing different things. They've been connecting with different people. And so they have that access to different kinds of ideas and insights that you normally get from a weak tie. And so, you know, one, one thought is it's worth reconnecting with one dormant tie every month. And you don't, you don't have to do it strategically or instrumentally. In fact, there's some research led by Daniel Levin, which shows that people are horrible at predicting which of their dormant ties are going to be helpful because by definition, you don't know what they know. Yeah. And so, you know, it's just best to say, hey, who are the people that I'd love to, to get back in touch with? And there's some studies where executives have been assigned to do this. And they groan and they say, but those ties are dormant for a reason. <laughs> and it turns out that most ties are not dormant for a reason. We got busy, we moved, we changed jobs. We did not mean to fall out of touch. And I think that we, we don't do as much to, to reconnect as we should. So we should go to our high school reunion. Is that what you're saying? No, no. That's why we have social media. You can skip the reunion <laughs> and just find them on LinkedIn or Facebook. Thank you, God. Thank you. No, thank you, Adam, for giving me that permission because my 35th is coming up. Oh, boy. I mean, talk, of, talk about disruption, right? Reunions are irrelevant now. Yeah, that's They're obsolete. true. Except that, you know what, there's something about the serendipity of running into, uh, running into someone that you didn't necessarily want to run into. That's true. And and that can be really positive. And, and you know, because if I'm just scrolling through Facebook, nope, 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 nope. And if I get to the <laughs> end of my class, it's like, heck no, I'm not going to the reunion. But then if you're there, you're kind of forced to talk to them and it could be a, a beautiful thing. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And, you know, one of the things you discover actually is you when you when you try to reconnect with people, whether it's at a reunion or whether you're reaching out, you you learn pretty quickly whether you've been more of a giver or a taker. Right. So if if you've built up a history of generosity, people are thrilled to hear from you. Whereas if you've been selfish, they want to lock the door to their network and throw away the key. <laughs> oh my God, this and is make the sure reckoning. that you never get in. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, in that sense, what goes around comes around. But, you know, it is an interesting test, right, of not not necessarily whether, you know, you are a giver or a taker, but, you know, in that relationship, in that interaction in the past, how have you been perceived? So when you're meeting with all these dormant ties and they're generating tons of good ideas for you, um, how, how do you know which ideas to pursue? I mean, are you going to become an aerial pilot or so Adam you have a way <laughs> you talk about originals and and just the plethora of ideas as not being a negative because I can see that it would be a little bit you know it, it can put you on stop when you're surrounded by too many ideas too because you could be bad at them if you're- yeah so you know I think the good news on this is that original thinkers have more bad ideas than their peers <laughs> and yeah, I mean, so the more horrible ideas you have, the more creative you are. But there, there, there's actually, there's a lot of evidence for that. And, you know, we see it among scientists and musicians and inventors and artists. And it seems to be that just highly original people have lots of ideas. And when you're generating an idea, uh, you're in an open sort of creative mode, which is very different from what you need to do to evaluate an idea, which is kind of a different phase of, you know, being more skeptical, more discerning, more critical. And so, you know, I think in a lot of cases, we're we're just bad at judging our own ideas. Uh, I have a former student, Justin Berg, who's now a Stanford professor, and Justin showed in some research that if you have a list of 20 ideas you came up with, 
You should rank them from favorite to least favorite. And then your most promising idea is not the one you rank first. It's the one you rank second, most often. Uh-huh. Wow, that's fascinating. Because yeah. we just, we're a little blinded to our own ideas, huh? Exactly. And that number two idea, you have a little more distance. You're able to see it with more objectivity, but you also have enough passion you know, to not only recognize the flaws, but try to fix them. And so I, I'm always a little worried when I think about this research because people just try to game the system and say, wait, so if I take my favorite idea and I rank it second, I'm good. <laughs> no, don't do that. Well, I, I find that I am absolutely full of ideas, um, but I also get very self-critical when I get overwhelmed and I'm not following up on them in the way I think I should. You know, the flaming hoops that I mentioned earlier. <laughs> um, and one of the things you, you talk about is self-compassion and having, um, having that for yourself. Um, moments where, I guess, I hope I'm, I hope I'm getting this right, um, moments where you just, you know, you give yourself some slack. Sometimes, though, I get nervous that I have too much of that. And there might be too much slack. Um, how, how do you, you know, how do you find the balance between stagnation and, um, and also just giving yourself some room? So here's what's interesting. Uh, this, is, this is Kristen Neff's work. She's a psychologist who put self-compassion on the map. What she shows is that self-compassion is not about letting yourself off the hook. And so slack might be the wrong way to think about it. It's more about showing yourself the kindness and understanding that you would give to a good friend who is struggling in the way that you might be in that whatever situation you're in. And so one of the ways that, that you're supposed to develop self-compassion is you think about a failure or a challenge or an embarrassing experience you've had, and you write a letter to yourself as if you were writing to a good friend and give them the, the kind of encouragement and understanding that you would normally show. Now, that doesn't mean you don't take responsibility, right? You wouldn't say to a friend, oh, it's totally not your fault that you, know, that you failed because you were unprepared. You would say, you know, I, I see that this happened, but, you know, this happens to everyone, and I know you'll do better next time. And you might even give some tips on how to do that. And so I think that same kindness can be turned inward, and that's what self-compassion is all about. So is that sort of what you showed yourself when you got all those negative reviews from, from the students you subjected to your terrible, terrible lecturing at the beginning? Did you just, was it partly like saying, look, there's some good stuff in here, and I'll get better as I go along, and... Or were you not so good at that then? You know, I, I think it's always a tightrope walk. I think what, what I was worst at in, in that moment was, was doing what I probably would have benefited the most from, which was just sitting down and watching myself on tape and being able to see exactly what the students were seeing. And I think I just would have processed it a lot more quickly. But I think what, what ended up working for me was I, uh, I started working with a, a teaching coach and she she videotaped me, and uh, I couldn't I couldn't bring myself to watch it at the time. I've I've gotten there finally, but <laughs> she you know she would actually watch the videos and then point out things that she saw as patterns when she was watching me live, and you know that that helped me just figure out. I, I realized a big chunk of my anxiety came from sort of not knowing what the right pacing was for an audience. And, you know, not knowing when I should stop and make a joke and when I should pause and give the audience a chance to reflect. And, you know, what like, what should my hands be doing when I'm giving a speech? <laughs> That's right? always all, a problem. Those, yeah, I know. No one, I th- I, no one ever knows. But I think that, you know, a lot of, a lot of that was, was saying, look, you know, I'm, I'm not going to be 
excellent at this today, but I believe this is something I can do better tomorrow. Yeah. So, so you, just to go back to a little detail here, so she watched the tapes and then gave you feedback so that you didn't have to? Or did you watch them yeah. with her? No, that's what, <laughs> so that's what ended up happening. It was, so it was you, too painful to watch. You like hid in a corner while she watched them. That's kind of amazing. It, it kind of reminds me of something. I read a, a piece in the Times recently. Um, it, was, it was kind of casual. There wasn't much, much data. It wasn't, wasn't really driven by data. But it was this observation that sometimes there's one huge thing that's holding us back. And you just need somebody to point out what your big thing is, what your big problem is. And maybe maybe you don't have one, but a lot of us do. They've got a we've got a big thing, and we're totally blind to it. Um, I mean, is is it an important thing, particularly when you're going through a difficult transition and you need that guidance to to find someone who'll be honest enough, or is or is that just like asking for brutality? Well, I don't know. You know, I think a lot of it depends on on your personality and the culture that you're in. I will say, though, that, you know, ultimately the the people who I know who not only achieve the most but also learn the most are the ones who are less concerned with protecting their images and their egos and more concerned with, with trying to attain mastery. And so, you know, and there's there's a lot of research on this, right, that if you're if you're always trying to avoid looking bad— or prove yourself to other people that you don't take the same kinds of risks and pursue the same kinds of challenges that you do if mastery is your goal. And so I think that, you know, at some level, I would love to see more people say, yeah, you know what? Criticism sometimes hurts. I'm not always going to enjoy hearing it, but I should crave it because that's the only way I'm ever going to get better and reach my potential. So just before we wrap up, I want to ask you one more question about a, an, another U-turn you've taken lately. You have kindly come on our podcast, but you also have a podcast, which I think is a fairly recent endeavor. Um, what what are you seeking to to achieve? Is it like building resilience through the, the digital stratosphere? <laughs> no, <laughs> what's, no. What, what's this new adventure for you on podcasts? Well, it's a few things. One, it's trying to reach people who don't read books or seem to read at all. Uh, that, that, was, that was part of the aspiration. <laughs> Two, I think that, you know, I've spent the past five years going into workplaces and, you know, mostly, I guess, sharing things that I've, I, I already know. And I wanted to go out in the world and learn again. And I thought a podcast was a great opportunity to do that and then share the, the insights and the ahas on the back end. And then the, the third thing is, I just think it's a travesty that the majority of, of people spend the majority of their waking hours at work. And so many of us work in jobs that we don't find meaningful and motivating. And I don't think we should tolerate that. So I guess, you know, in some ways, work life is about trying to, if, it's not just about making work suck less. It's also about trying to make work more meaningful and motivating. Well, we're so happy you're doing that. Thank you. Yes. I mean, honestly, I feel like I, I learned so much from that podcast and I'm loving it. And and we will be listening um, for for our listeners who I know also read books. <laughs> um, if you want to follow Adam Grant, find him at Adam, Grant, Adam M. Grant on Twitter and listen to this great new podcast, Work Life with Adam Grant, which is a, a TED production. We are 
so thankful, um, particularly since I've heard on your podcast, I've heard you talk about the importance of saying no to things to keep work from taking over (laughs) your life. So you said yes to us, and we are so appreciative. Thank you, Adam. Well, thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Jill. It was a delight to be here. So let us know what you are facing right now. Reach out to us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at U-Turns Podcast. Thanks so much. See you next time. Tired of endless diets and weight loss struggles? It's time to say goodbye to frustration and hello to results. Introducing Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD, your breakthrough solution to fight stubborn body fat. Imagine burning fat, balancing glucose levels, and regulating metabolism in just 12 weeks. This unique two-in-one product combines the power of two clinically studied ingredients in one revolutionary formula. Berberine, which targets abdominal fat, and OEA, which curbs your appetite. With just two capsules a day, Smart Metabolic Burn by BrainMD can kickstart your metabolism, fight stubborn body fat, especially that pesky abdominal fat, and support your weight management journey. And right now, save over 30% on Smart Metabolic Burn at GetSmartBurn.com, the lowest price anywhere. That's GetSmartBurn.com. Don't delay. Transform your life with Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Our products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Are you feeling overwhelmed by anxiety, struggling to find restful sleep, or plagued by a restless inability to focus? It's time to break free from the chains of mental health challenges and discover a path to healthy living. Welcome to Amen University, founded by renowned psychiatrist and brain health expert, Dr. Daniel Amen. Dr. Amen, alongside a team of esteemed doctors and experts in their fields, understands the struggles you're facing and are here to offer solutions. From debilitating anxiety to sleepless nights filled with worry, our courses are meticulously crafted to target these specific challenges head on. Join us on a journey of transformation led by Dr. Amen and a roster of top-tier professionals. Say goodbye to the constant battle with your mind and embrace a future filled with hope and possibility. Visit our website today to explore our courses and start your journey towards a brighter tomorrow. Use code BRAIN10 and get 10% off. That's code BRAIN10 and get 10% off your first purchase. Amen University, because your mental health matters.